0: Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started paddling the blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today I'm joined by Jack Hampton. Jack and his friends paddled the Inside Passage with the goal of not only completing the trip, but to explore the lives of those living in the coastal margin communities along the way and how they're impacted by decisions made about their homeland. Before we get to our chat with Jack, James and Simon at OnlineSeaKayaking.com continue to produce great content to help you evolve as a paddler and as a coach. Everything from basic strokes and safety to paddling in tides, surfing, coaching, documentaries, it's all in one place. So if you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, here's your opportunity to get started. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com, use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout, and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. Level 6 continues to be a great supporter of Paddling the Blue, and we've got a special offer just for you. If you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, just visit their website at Level6.com, use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout, and you'll get 10% off your order there as well. So with that, enjoy today's episode with Jack Hampton. Hello, Jack. Welcome to Paddling the Blue.
1: Hi, John. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, I appreciate you taking the time. So, Jack, you're uh, you're uh, we're here to talk about paddling the margins. So, uh, let's tell us, how did you get your start in paddling?
1: So, for me, the, the start of my paddling was when I was 18, and I was at university, and my college had a travel grant. It was quite a prestigious travel grant, and you had to pitch something fairly punchy to have a chance of winning it. And uh, a friend of mine said, oh, well, what about kayaking? Let's, uh, let's give that a go. No one's done a, a kayaking trip. And I thought, oh, that sounds great. And uh, m- my dad's uh, half Norwegian. And we thought Scandinavia, not, not too uh, tidal in the Baltic. Maybe that'd be a good place to do it. And we pitched this idea of paddling from Finland to Norway. And it was obviously punchy enough that we won. And then I was left in the position of, I should probably learn how to kayak now. (laughs) Um, So uh, it was the summer of my first first year of uni. So I went back home to North Devon and I contacted the local kayak club and a fairly concerned, and maybe slightly bemused person answered the phone and I told them about that. And they said, right, well, you should come out with us. And it, it turned out afterwards that, it was uh, pete fawn and clive doe who are two local paddlers and they'd planned to basically take me out and give me a bit of a scare to convince me not to do this but obviously i passed the test because at the end of it they said they told me that that's what they had planned to do and they said if you if you commit to coming out with us three or four times a week for the next five weeks we think that you'll you'll be in a reasonable position to do this so i did that and then i went to scandinavia and paddled nine and a half weeks across across Scandinavia and that was really the, the launch pad for my, my paddling.
0: So that nine and a half week trip, aside from a little bit of training was your first, first trip.
1: Yeah, it was, I really jumped into the deep end and I made as many mistakes as you can imagine. And I've basically spent the decade after that <laughs> learning how to do it properly and uh, progressively realizing h- how many errors I did make, but it, you know, it, it did go, it went very well. We got from A to B, we had a brilliant adventure while we were doing it. And I really got the bug for that mode of traveling, that mode of adventure and being on the water.
0: Yeah. So just out of curiosity, I know there were probably hundreds, if not thousands of, uh, of learning experiences on that nine and a half week trip. What would you say that, what was the big aha, the big learning moment that you had on that nine and a half week trip, having, having been your first trip?
1: I think. The role of skill in sea kayaking, I, I guess I had just sort of thought that I'm, I'm pretty fit. I play uh, field hockey at a pretty high level. I'd surf all my childhood and done surf life saving and stuff like that. I thought I, I sort of knew what I was doing roughly in the sea. But cruising big distances, which is a, is a bit of a factor of fitness, is very different to when it gets a bit rough. I think that was probably the big Learning point was there's a lot of technique in this there's a there's a lot of skill there's a lot of sea craft and uh, and it's actually quite fun to be in those waters when you when you know what you're doing and I had not prepared properly in that regard.
0: Okay. So of all the places in the world, why the Inside Passage for this trip?
1: Yeah, good question. So having grown up in uh, North Devon. on on the coast there, I was really keen to do an expedition and a filmmaking project, which looked into the issues that coastal communities face through the lens of climate change. And the Pacific Northwest really offered that marginal environment, a coastal margin, which is really feeling the impacts of climate change and of the green transition in terms of sort of industrial change along that coastline, you know, moving from a really resource extraction dominated economic system to something a bit different. Plus it had, you know, millennia of heritage of a more sustainable relationship with the environment of First Nations stewardship of the environment and the use of paddle craft. So it seemed to be a location where I was likely to be able to investigate the topics I wanted to, which was, you know, what can we learn from people with lived experience of the coast a different type of expert, I guess, not just thinking about, you know, what can academics tell us or politicians tell us, what about local people who who are living there and living and breathing the problems and challenges that this transition are are going to confront us with. And I guess the Pacific Northwest being, uh, at least the Northern section being a bit further North, a lot more wild, a lot more remote, a lot less hospitable than, the UK coastline was probably that bit further on and those challenges were going to be a, a bit more present and we're likely to, to to really feel those as we paddled down it. So I, I guess it was to try and achieve the the objectives of the film why I chose to situate us there. I guess there was a practical element as well which was first Big filmmaking project. I wanted to be in a part of the world which spoke English. I wanted to be in a part of the world which had a well-established, you know, search and rescue service. Those elements are very important when you're doing something unsupported.
0: And I think you uh, you kind of gave the name away just a little bit. But where did the name "paddling the margins" come from?
1: Right. Uh, yes, it really comes from that concept of of the marginal zone of the coastal margin. Looking at marginalization from both a sort of physiological geomorphology perspective in the actual barrier between two very different environments one where humans have sort of become pretty hegemonic and dominant and another where we are still very much very much at risk very much less suited but also looking at other types of margins that come to the fore on the coast like the economic margin like social marginalization as well and that's something that you become very aware of growing up in a coastal community like north devon which is there aren't many jobs the industries that sustain the areas in the past have moved away uh, whether that's heavy industry or fisheries and now you're very reliant on tourism and hospitality which is seasonal it's difficult as a young person to to find the type of work that's going to keep you there, even if you want to live there. So there's there's a lot of different things interplaying at coastal margins, and I think it it allows and it certainly allowed us on this project to start asking the questions about a more nuanced conversation about what the green transition and climate change are going to mean for these places.
0: All right, well, I'd love to I'd, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your learnings from that standpoint. Um, let's talk a little bit about the trip and then we'll kind of dive back into the other part. So you had mentioned you know, search and rescue and wanting to make sure you had uh, all those capabilities in place. And so let's talk a little bit about the team. I think those, kind of, those things kind of fit together. So tell us how your team came together.
1: Yeah, so I made the choice early on that I wanted to do this project with friends who I knew I was gonna get along with, who were really invested in the message of the project, rather than with people who were already skilled kayakers. So that meant, you know, this, this project took five years to, to make happen, to get to the point of putting the first paddle in the water. And during that time, four of those people, Emmy, Nick, Josh and James, who all did sections with me, went from having never kayaked before to being trip ready and that was a lot of a lot of trips to north devon a lot of help from the bidderford canoe club who which is my home club uh, to train them up and get them ready for that lots of pool sessions as well to try and upskill them and to be honest we had a fantastic time learning those skills uh, for them it was also uh, i guess an elongated process of checking that they wanted to do this, that they wanted to go somewhere that was gonna be really out of their comfort zone. So yeah, that's how the the team was picked. They are people who I have been friends with for a very long time and who really bought into the sustainability message and and the, the sort of narrative approach we were going to take with the film, that of putting local people with different forms of knowledge in front of camera and trying to bring that back to the UK.
0: So the other team members didn't have any kayaking experience prior?
1: None apart from Ben. Uh, ben Bishop is a is a kayaker. He, he's a sea kayak guide. He works now in Vancouver as a guide. And I've met him via an advanced kayaking course on Anglesey. So Ben was the exception. And Ben did the more exposed section with me around Cape Caution, the bits where we, we had to deal with well, we were less sheltered by the natural geography of that coastline, but you know, Ben is also—I uh, think he was 21 at the time that we did the film. So he really also brought into that part of it of young people who believe in a, a project, going and, and trying to do something different and ambitious in, in a in a sea kayaking and sustainability space.
0: So the you mentioned five year five year planning phase. What what took so long? What took what took that time?
1: Well, COVID made it longer than okay. <laughs> initially planned. We had planned to paddle the year before and all the way leading up to that summer, we were, are we going, are we not going? And eventually we, we just had to make the decision that global lockdown situation was too unclear whether it would open up enough for us to go there. In retrospect, that was very sensible because it gave us an extra year to prepare. I think the film is a lot better because of that. And we were paddling between a lot of First Nations communities. And uh, as I experienced, as I was paddling between uh, those communities, the fear of COVID and of what fundamentally is a group of you know foreign white people bringing another disease into their community was still a very Uh, really at the front of a lot of people's minds and it was actually fairly difficult sometimes for us to make connections or to even find somewhere to stay or to restock at some of the more remote communities that we went through and that was a a year late a year on from that when most restrictions well all restrictions had had been lifted so it was definitely sensible the other reason for it taking five years was because the whole team have, have have different jobs you know, we're all in our 20s and life's pretty busy in your 20s. And this was a pet project that grew into something a lot bigger. And that takes a lot of time when you're doing it in your evenings and your weekends.
0: So we know that the group had limited experience um, prior, so no limited to no kayaking experience prior. How did the group have collective experience during that time to build up?
1: Maybe I wasn't clear earlier though there was six of us there was never more than two people on the water okay so basically I paddled the entire way and different people came out did uh, between a one and a three week section with me and then went back so all of that time was spent one-to-one with me and part of my prep for this has been getting all of the required knowledge to feel safe in leading people who have a lot less experience in those types of environments the crucial element of which is the fact that you're very remote and it's a long way to get help and you have to sort yourself out so i did my advanced sea kite leader qualification in the lead up to the trip which was a really good way of structuring my personal preparation and by having it maximum two paddlers on the water at any one time it, it meant that that ratio was really good. I could always be focused on looking after that one person and only focused on what they're comfortable with because the difference in skill among even the novice paddlers was, was quite notable. James was a fish to water with paddling and was pretty gritty with it. And I could probably push him a little harder in terms of the conditions that we paddled in. Josh, on the other hand, found it a lot more challenging and I had to adapt to that. So I guess I had to bring it back to your initial question. How, how how did we prepare collectively? Some of them came and did one-on-one paddling periods with me in the southwest. But there were a few set weeks where they all came down to North Devon and we did some structured coaching. And again, the leaders and coaches from Biddeford Canoe Club volunteered their time to help make that happen and, and prepare them for it
0: so so you never really had more than two on the water at any time uh, any one time never, so there really yeah. wasn't much of a need to bring the group together and have them all be familiar with and working with each other
1: because you were never in that model while you were on the water yeah and to be honest the you know if there was ever going to be a rescue situation it was going to be me who was executing it they needed to know what was going on they needed to know how to be a helpful casualty in those situations and they needed the medical knowledge to to make the right decisions if for instance it was me who was who was the casualty so james Aylwood, who did the first section with me he's also an emergency medical doctor and expedition medical planner so he did a lot of upskilling of the group about how to assess potential injuries and what the right call is to make when how to basically like in, in those situations where some of the response times are up you know up to sort of eight hours before you might get picked up it's about prolonging life and making sensible decisions in the worst case scenarios and we really did focus on getting that knowledge and the knowledge of how to use the various level upon level upon level of emergency uh signaling devices and you know plbs that we had there and ready but I was the leader on the water and I, and that was my responsibility at the end of the day to keep people safe.
0: So walk us through the trip.
1: So we flew out to Ketchikan, Alaska on the 27th of April. So pretty early in the season and we're on the water on the, on the 29th and paddled south down the coast, taking pretty much always, we took the most sheltered route we could partly because of what we've already talked about regarding the experience level of the group all the way to Vancouver Island. And then we paddled the inside of Vancouver Island all the way through to the San Juans and then down Puget Sound to Seattle, where we finished. And during that period, none of the support paddlers did longer than, I think, three and a half weeks. And I was solo for about five weeks, 600 kilometres in the middle of it
0: why such a, a long
1: solo well that's a good question it, <laughs> it's hard it's hard in retrospect to disentangle your feelings about what the experience was like to actually do to to, to what you thought going into it the solo section was an absolute highlight for me so uh, i guess i have a rose tinted view and i could just tell you this because i really wanted to do a long solo section i think the actual reason was because. I had found five people who I felt confident doing the trip with, and I didn't have other people to bring along. They all had day jobs. They all had to make this work with annual leave and uh, no one could do longer than three and a half weeks, as I said. So there was always going to be a shortfall in that amount of time. Fair
0: enough. Just out of curiosity, going back to that uh, the, the Finland trip, yep. was was that solo or much of it solo?
1: No, 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 no. That was all with my friend, uh, Dylan Lynch, who also hadn't paddled before, was, I think it's fair to say, l- less of a natural to it, but we did it in a double kayak. Okay. So we were able to collectively meet the standard.
0: So on the trip itself, I had not, had an opportunity to preview the movie, and uh, you had a lot of moments of high stress. So tell us about some of those.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, Poor old Josh. He got most of the moments of high stress in his <laughs> section. So, uh, yeah, he he's become quite a, a dramatic character in the in the film. Probably the highest stress moment was when we were flooded out in the uh, about two a.m. by a freak high tide in the middle of the forest, which was pretty scary. We had set off that morning only. 11 kilometres short of a settlement where we'd already arranged to do some interviews. It's a place called Una River, former logging community. And with the film's focus on uh, sustainability, talking to, to people from the logging industry was something we were really keen to do. And there was a big old headwind and Josh had had a, a tough first couple of days on the water and was pretty tired, but it was only 10, kilo, you know, 10, 11 kilometres. And I thought, you know, even if we go at one kilometer an hour, that's fine. We, if we get there, then we can rest and recuperate and have a shower and chill out, and and uh, it it it's worth the it's worth the risk. And I was wrong. <laughs> it was not <laughs> worth the risk. It was not worth the risk. And um, and it was something that I didn't realize that I'd made that mistake until 2 a.m. the next morning, because we we set off and we paddled and we made really slow progress to the point that my tidal calculations went out the window because we hadn't got past the point we needed to by the time the tide changed and then we were tied and wind against and and we had to make a emergency camp well not an emergency camp we had to just stop short we were running out of well josh had run out of energy completely Mm -hmm. and it had reached the end of the day so we paddled up a small creek only five kilometres short of where we were aiming to go and we paddled up at high tide, at high water and I knew it was a dropping tide overall so when we got to a, a flat bit at the at the top of this creek at high water I thought well you know it's pretty pretty secure, water's not going to come any higher than this and we pitched our tent uh, a good metre above that line again uh, up in the Salau, the bushes and at 2 a.m. I woke up floating on my sleeping mat in a good foot of water, which was, well, it was just a very sort of disorientating experience. Sure. We were in one tent and I was actually like down slope of Josh. So the water would have entered under me first, but I obviously sleep like an absolute rock because all <laughs> that happened was I had just floated up up in the tent. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So I was just floating on my mat and when the the water reached Josh and he woke up he instantly sort of you know panicked and was like there's water there's water and sort of grabbed me and shook me awake and I woke up and promptly slipped off my mat into you know half a foot of freezing cold water which was not well it's a very quick way to wake up (laughs) but uh yeah that, that shock sort of hit and i unfortunately then instantly cramped and it was i was between josh and the doorway josh was desperate to get out and he was telling me get out get out and uh, i was like i can't move <laughs> <You've got to laughs> wait wait it's all gonna be fine just wait let, let my leg unseize and i got got out and you know we we're all soaked it's freezing cold it's pitch black in the forest and that there isn't any high ground around the whole forest is flooded and what we found out afterwards was it had been a lunar eclipse at night and the the tide came up a full meter higher than forecast mm-hmm. and the entire forest was just completely underwater yeah i got my head torch on and uh, we both you know we were both back in our dry suits probably within two three minutes of of waking up which was pretty quick, but Josh was in, and you see this in the film. uh, I mean, I said this to him as a way of reassuring him that I I wasn't as panicked as he felt that my first thing to do was to turn the camera on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, you you, you get it in the film that he is in, in real sort of terror mode and more worryingly, he's, shivering very strongly and i'm very worried that he's gonna go hypothermic so we made the decision to get in the boats and to go then in the middle of the night and I've, i've done a fair amount of night paddling you have to do night paddling in order to get your advanced sea leader so for me that wasn't going to be that scary but for josh he's never paddled at night and the day before you know the conditions have been too much for him so he was thinking the conditions would be the same and he was about to go out in the dark, freezing cold, uh, to face something that he wasn't able to to get past in the light. We had a live forecast and I knew that the, the wind had dropped. You could feel that the wind had completely dropped. So I felt like it probably actually the conditions were flat and obviously we wouldn't have gone out into them if, if it had been pushy. We paddled to the mouth of the estuary, looked at the conditions. Sure enough, it was absolutely flat as a pancake. And that was when I really relaxed we're going to be fine he's stable he's no longer shivering his you know his, his temperature's back under control we've got all our stuff and we we'll, we'll just get to that settlement now it's e- easy navigation and we paddled in and we and as we paddled the, the sun came up and i actually had a really beautiful paddle <laughs> i really enjoyed i really enjoyed it the sun rising bioluminescence lit up the water at one point which was pretty magical i don't think Josh had quite as as good a time
0: now, you mentioned yeah, that you had all your kit. Did you have all your kit?
1: So, so, no. So, we had our emergency kit. So, I always have the kit split between, like, a, a grab bag for on the water of what we what's absolutely essentials. But, obviously, because we we'd camped that night, we had spread out a fair amount of stuff. The tent, <laughs> you know, all our sleeping sleeping mats and sleeping bags that were all sodden. Uh, basically, what we had done was we would roped all of the dry bags together um, and use one of our photos to tie it to a tree before paddling. And the next morning when we got to Una river to the person we were staying with, he, he was quite a guy called Leo. He, we knocked on his door at like five 30 in the morning and he was, very confused to find two bedraggled paddlers stood on his doorstep when he wasn't expecting us for quite a long time. Turned out he'd had a big night on the whiskey the night before as well. So he wasn't <laughs> in the best best situation. Uh, so we, we got in, showered, slept for a few hours. Uh, I think also Leo, Leo slept for a few a few more hours. And then we took his boat out and uh, nipped back round and, and got, got all the kit and miraculously we hadn't lost anything we thought we lost a glove but we found it at the bottom of one of the boats a week later
0: <laughs> ah. <laughs> so you also had a an, an incident with the coast guard
1: yeah this is probably one of the like least dramatic interactions with with the coast guard you could imagine we haven't mentioned it so far but Part of the challenge of this trip was we did it in folding skin-on-frame boats that had been provided by Nauterade. So these are wood-frame boats, they fold down into one, you know, into into a rucksack so they can go and hold, and, you, and there's a skin that gets stretched over them. And uh, that was to enable paddlers to be able to come in and out of the trip, and I guess to add a degree of extra challenge to the whole experience. And, This was maybe five weeks into the paddle now, and they were beginning to show a fair bit of wear. I'd already patched my boat in particular, which was a Greenland model, three times for minor leaks. And a few days after that flooding incident, I was paddling along and I realised I was taking on water quite quickly. I didn't want to freak Josh out. He'd had enough <laughs> Enough drama I felt over the last couple of days, so I just quietly kept paddling. But at the uh, we stopped for lunch. I pumped out the boat. There was quite a lot of water in it. We carried on, and two hours later, uh, I was basically completely awash inside. And the, the thing about a skin-on-frame boat is it doesn't have bulkheads, so you're paddling in a sea sock, uh, which is your safety that's the safety element that if you capsize the boat isn't going to completely fill only the only this sort of like this bag is going to fill mm-hmm. but if you've got a leak that's coming in through the hole then it's it's filling up the entire kayak and there was probably 60 liters of water in the boat when we stopped Now mm. well, the conditions were completely benign and we had reached where we were going to camp that night anyway so we then spent a good two three hours <laughs> it's all been cut out the film because it's fairly boring of scratching our heads and trying to work out where the sleep was coming from. And I suspected that basically one of the seams had gone and under water pressure, I was ingressing along a whole seam. And I like the repair kit I had was not up to patching, you know, foot long sections of seam. And we were, I think 200 kilometers in either direction from the nearest place where we'd get significant help there was a first nations community about 30 kilometers away but we've been in contact with them and they had told us that they were still closed and we were not well no no visitors were, were welcome so it did turn into a non-urgent call to the coast guard I, I, you know i called them up and said look we're, we're absolutely fine we're at a place where we're, we're camping but we've got a compromised boat and i don't feel comfortable continuing with a compromised boat and they they were very nice. Uh, They put a call out to all shipping traffic and initially a fishing vessel that was on its way back through to Rupert said that they would come pick us up. And then uh, another voice piped up on the end of the VHF saying, Canadian Coast Guard, this is the Canadian Coast Guard. We're actually on drill about 10 kilometers away from where those guys are. Shall we just pick them up? And Control were like, Yeah, sure. If you want to. So, so we got picked up by five fairly new recruits and they were on training and they were in a, like a rib and they it was absolutely hammering it down with rain and they were very bedraggled and looked very happy to have something to do because they had basically just been sent out there to just sit in this, this rib overnight. (laughs) And the five of them turned up and you know, said hi and picked up the boats and got them in the rib. And then we took the rib out to a much bigger ship, which was pretty cool because we drove the rib up onto the ship. And then that ship took us down the channel. we just paddled and we were picked up by another ship. And, you know, seven hours later, we arrived back in Prince Rupert where we had left seven days earlier and, you know, re- repaired the boat in a day and then and then cracked back on with the expedition. But yeah, <laughs> it it wasn't ideal no it was it wasn't ideal but it was a very positive experience of the canadian coast guard they were awesome professionals very skilled very friendly and also what was nice to me was that they were the captain was incredibly reassuring that you know we had done the right thing and um they they gave us a bit of a grilling on our our safety kit they asked us many questions about everything we had and we obviously passed the test because they they, they told us afterwards that we had everything we needed. Apparently, they quite regularly pick up paddlers who don't have appropriate equipment, so they were very keen to to, to check that that uh, we weren't being, you know, sort of negligent in, in how we were approaching it.
0: Well, they let you they let you back out again. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for those not familiar with the term, you mentioned a rib. Um, describe yeah. that for
1: us. Uh, yeah, it's a rigid inflatable boat, so it's. I guess it's like, like like a speed boat, but with a sort of high pressured inflatable sides. So it, there isn't a canopy to it. It's just just a fast boat with a with an outboard with a few seats in it. So we were pretty rammed in when we had two, we didn't collapse the boat. So we had two kayaks, uh, five Coast Guard and two damp sea kayakers <laughs> in, in in it, all uh, just sort of crammed in. And as we were loading the boats onto the rib. Two massive grey coastal wolves popped out of the forest uh. and stood maybe 100 metres away from us and just watched us, which was an awesome experience. We'd seen wolves already on that trip, but all of the wolves we had seen had looked pretty sort of scraggly and hungry. And these two were just majestic. They were just huge and looked in incredible condition and just sort of imperiously stared at us as we forlornly retreated to the Coast Guard. <laughs>
0: So you mentioned the the added challenge of the boats. So in addition to that, what was the hardest part of the trip?
1: I think the hardest part of the trip was the weather. We had timed the paddle to try and pick up when the, the winds change. So normally in, in the winter in, in that area, you get winds blowing up the coast. So you get you know headwinds for us, and then it switches and comes from the north instead. But that happened about seven weeks later than when it normally happens that year and it was it turned out it was one of the wettest and coldest springs since records began in the pacific northwest when the summer before had been the hottest Uh, you know there had been a heat dome there had been wildfires there had been mass dieback of of crustaceans due to the the temperature of the water and then you know 12 months later you have the opposite and it was brutal cold headwinds and non-stop rain for basically the first seven weeks and that really it puts a, st- a strain on your body it puts a strain on your kit and definitely puts a strain on your morale you know there's still there's still snow on the ground <laughs> as as we were paddling in some of some of the bits I was you know waking up with ice in my eyebrows having worn every item I could to go to sleep it was it was it was really cold and our kit We'd select, you know, like my sleeping bag, I had to send it back in the second paddler. Josh brought out a, a thicker one, a three season, well, a three to four season bag instead of the two to three season bag I had. But yeah, that level of wet is, is difficult to deal with for that length of time. I think the longest we had was three full days and three full nights without it ever stopping raining. Mm. It occasionally got slightly less heavy <laughs> but, <laughs> and it never stopped. That was That was tough. Yeah, it's a temperate rainforest, you know, and, and we, we experienced that.
0: Now yeah, you mentioned cold, I mean, why did you, why did you choose to start your trip April 29th, very early in the season?
1: Yeah, a good question. if I was to do it again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't start that early. It was partly constraints with work. I'd got a period of time off work, a sabbatical, I like work as a civil servant working in sustainability policy in the department of education and that was when the the I've been I've been given the leave okay. to do it. We also wanted to be off the water before the salmon run later in the year because we knew that we would be paddling through a lot of water catchments as they flew out to the river at the mouth of lots of estuaries, and we thought that was probably a sensible thing to avoid sharing that space with a lot of hungry bears. Good plan. And we we you know we did encounter a lot of bears, uh, both black bears and grizzlies, but they were. Every single one was wholly uninterested in us, which was great. Okay. How did you resupply? So, a lot of people who have asked me about this, paddlers, always sort of have assumed that we would have done drops and uh, bought freeze-dried food and that that sort of military ration packs and that sort of stuff. Uh, We didn't do that, and we made that decision very early on for for a couple of reasons. One was just practically cost. That stuff costs so much money. But two, I thought it was completely inconsistent with the purpose of a, a trip, which was about uh, sustainable development of coastal communities and asking people about how their lives and livelihoods are being affected. And and you know that some of those communities are really impoverished. And I thought it was really inconsistent to then have flown in our own food and not put our own money back into those communities and restock it in those places. So we just restocked. We carried about. 10 days worth of food at a time. And we restocked as we went in the communities along the coast, often homesteaders and people living off grid, some of whom feature in the film, in the sections about sort of off grid sustainable living. They gave us food that they had, you know, whether it was fish that they had canned themselves or preserved berries and seeds. And, you know, we actually ate very well. And a lot more cheaply and hopefully uh, a lot more fairly to, to local people than if we had flown all of that stuff in with massive air miles.
0: With that in mind, let, let's get into the into the message. So the message of paddling the margins, as you mentioned, was to support uh, was to learn about the communities and how they'd been marginalised by outside forces. So tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, when conceiving of of the project, I, I guess the project was partly built built out of a couple of different frustrations that I had with the sort of sustainability space and the adventure film space. One of which was you, you get a lot of documentaries in this area where the presenter is absolutely sort of builders as the expert. You know, they might interview other experts or local people, but then you end up with a piece to camera where, where they sort of re-explain what, what you've just been told by, by someone more qualified Back to the audience, and I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to put local people with their perspectives and their issues on camera, and you'll you'll see that in the sort of storytelling approach of the film. Very rarely is the interviewer actually in shot. Mostly, we shot the interviews with the interviewer behind camera, so that the focus is really on uh, on on the people that we 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 found to talk to, or you know, who were happy to talk to us so we tried to do something different in how we in how we told those stories we also tried to focus on culture change as a balance to the sort of prevailing narrative a lot in the in the uk i'm not so sure about uh, north america or other parts of the world is that technology is going to be absolutely key to solving climate change reaching net zero that's undeniably true but it's not the whole story and i think a focus on sort of tech saviorism can result in people not feeling that this is going to have to have an impact on their lives and going to these places where people are living in an environment where they have to adapt to their environment rather than just dominate it and lay- enabled us to ask people about their consumption and about how like what a sustainable relationship with what you're consuming and and your environment looks like and it's a, it's a very different relationship and connection than you have if you just buy everything in, in the local supermarket um, or from Amazon and and you don't have that connection. Um, and that was a major takeaway for, from the experience.
0: So what were some of those those learnings uh, that you had during the experience as you were interviewing folks?
1: What was particularly interesting about the interviews was we interviewed, so we interviewed 28 different people. <laughs> I think only four or five get into the film festival cut because of the, you know, the constraint of a film festival time-wise, but we interviewed people from the far left and the far right of North American sort of political spectrum. People who were former uh, draft dodging hippies who, you know, living off grid as a a real sort of cultural choice, but also people who grown up in those areas in fishing and logging families and had a very, very different motivation to, to live there or were living there out of, out of necessity. And the massive takeaway was even when talking to people who were so different and, and had such different views on everything in their, their lives, they all said the same solutions, which was devolve control of natural resources to those who live among them to those who are proximate to those resources don't package up and sell these as a resource which is then sort of removed from you know where decisions are being made about the management of that resource at one or two or three degrees of separation from it and where the only consideration is economic if people if local people are managing the resources on their doorstep they're not just thinking about the economics of it they're they're thinking about the longevity of it they're thinking about future generations they're thinking about particularly in first nations case uh, past generations and duty to to previous ways of life and, and to sustaining something for for the long term uh, and in like a respectful way but everyone said that everyone said you know if we treat this purely as an economic resource we will drain it until it's dead and We've done that in parts of BC. We've done that in parts of Washington State and Alaska. And we will live with the consequences of that now. And we need to change what we're doing. And on fishing and on forestry, the two main extractive industries we looked at, that lesson was was so clear. And also the paddle shows, hopefully, as as a visual reminder of what we stand to lose, that we still have these wild, beautiful areas, we still have these incredible natural resources, but we're at a tipping point and we're at a moment where we have to make a decision about, do we want to have these for the long term?
0: So one of your interviewees ha- had made the comment that you can't manage this from thousands of kilometers away in Ottawa. You have to manage it locally. Yeah, that yeah, absolutely hit the nail on the head. So how did you source your interviews?
1: Perhaps naively ahead of time, I thought I'd be able to arrange a lot by calling and emailing people along the route and then linking the paddle, linking up these people. The truth was that a lot of the people that we interviewed were not particularly contactable. Most of the people we spoke to were very kind in giving us their insights, uh, but they weren't seeking to push that knowledge or those views out into the world we had to go and, and find them. And therefore, the way that most of those interviews came about was through a chain of referrals. We interviewed someone in Prince Rupert who said, oh, you know, I like what you guys are doing. I like your your vibe about how you're approaching this project and this issue. You should talk to my friend X who lives, you know, 50 kilometers that way, sort of in your direction. Some, and sometimes they, they would Uh, give them a call and tell them we're coming. And sometimes they just said, nah, just turn up. They won't mind. And that's how we ended up staying with people like Nick and Jana, uh, who feature in the film, who are off-grid homesteaders. Nick was a tree planter. He planted a million trees before before settling down to this way of life where they're pretty much completely self-sufficient on the land. I think they only sort of consistently buy grain and barley for for, for bread and beer, and everything else they, they sort of produce themselves. That was an incredible experience to spend a few days living with them and, and some some brilliant insights from them in interviews. And that purely came from the referral of one person to another person to another person that landed us at their at their jetty. What
0: as what, what paddlers can we do to have a
1: positive impact? Good question. I think paddlers are, are, are generally a pretty sustainably-minded group because they're playing at the coastal margin. And I think anyone who takes their recreation on the sea in a responsible way has more respectful relationship with the environment because they understand its power and they understand its beauty. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a big positive for paddlers, encouraging other people to get into the sport and to sustainably and respectfully access the coast, I think is a, it, it, always positive. And then as individuals, we don't have that much power, but we can send a message through our actions and and through elevating issues. So in the UK, the cleanliness of our beaches and our waters is something that has become particularly pertinent and an area of debate in recent years. Organisations like Surfers Against Sewage and other charities like that have been pushing this this message. And I think paddlers, we have a, a role in amplifying those voices and continuing those discussions and, and pushing that because if there isn't a groundswell of pressure from fundamentally from voters then politicians aren't going to do anything they're not going to pressure the water companies to clean up the seas in terms of sewage which was something that came up in it on in my expedition as well talking to people about how uh, you know mining tailing and and pollution but also just sewage pollution were affecting sockeye stocks it's, it's, not, it's not just a UK problem. You know, if, if that pressure is not coming, then water companies won't be forced to make changes. If, if the pressure is also not coming about the amount of, um, you know, the amount of fishing tackle and other forms of plastic pollution in the seas and seeing the dead dolphins that have, uh, have got there due to bycatch or, or due to due to or birds entrapped in plastic bottles. That's, you know, taking pictures of this stuff, posting about it, pushing that message out and pressuring elected officials to do something about it is is massive and i think paddlers can play a role in in amplifying that message
0: okay And you had mentioned one other thing earlier uh, and that is just to make sure that instead of coming in and, and using the community for your own you know, simply using it for your recreation but make sure you're supporting the community along the way by local
1: yeah john yeah i think that is a Thanks for prompting me to, to mention that. That is that's a huge thing. These issues are and I think this is something that Paddling the Margins tries to do is we try to look at look at the issue of the sustain of the green transition in, in the round. You can't separate out sustainability from economic development from cultural issues. It's definitely the same in the UK where you have in you know, the industries and the which are based around tourism which are sort of extractive in a different sense to the pacific northwest where you have this you know you have industrial logging industrial fishing and i think there is something that is consistent about a sustainable way of living about the local economic development of coastal communities and empowering those communities to manage resources sustainably those things go hand in hand and we can't just look at green issues at the expense of poverty alleviation in some of these places, which are are really impoverished. So you've
0: got a movie coming out about the trip that we've talked about um, a number of times here. So tell us more about that and its release.
1: Paddling the Margins is a 55-minute film. It is, I guess, a dual narrative. It's both the narrative of a paddling journey, a group of young people, which is pretty unusual in sea kayaking, trying to paddle the whole west coast of canada and skin on frame boats unsupported but also the sustainability project that we've spoken about already we finished the film it was produced by a company called black revolver who have been awesome to work with they have a similar sort of vibe uh, which is has has meant that we you know it's been easy to for them to get that we're trying to do something a bit different that this is not just an adventure film or this is not just a a nature documentary this is this is something that has a, a, a dual narrative and a split purpose and we've entered it into a number of international film festivals banff ocean film festival paddling film festival lots of them we don't know if we've been successful in any of them yet so it's possible that uh you know paddling the margins isn't going to appear in those those festivals but we really hope it does and uh either way eventually once that sort of film festival circuit has has been exhausted it, it will go up online for for public consumption so i want it, the point is to is to tell a message and to amplify and elevate the voices of the people we spoke to and to bring their solutions their very sensible solutions into the into the public space and, and add to that conversation and debate so one way or another it will become publicly available and um, we have a we have a website which will notify people about when there are screenings or if there's film festival success and uh, yeah it'd be great if uh, if people could could you know check that out. We'd love, to, love for people to see the film.
0: Okay, and what is that website that people can uh, go to and, and find out more about the film?
1: Yeah, it's www.paddlingthemargins.com.
0: And uh, can people where can where can people learn more about you and your adventures?
1: Uh, well, I'm on Instagram, at Paddling the Margins, as well. And that, though that, that feed mainly focused on the expedition and there is a post for every one of the 95 days I spent out on the water. Uh, it, it's now also just my other paddling and uh, I am very keen to do more projects in this space. There will be more paddling the margins projects, film based, hopefully. And, and, you know, we're already in conversations about that. The ch- Something we haven't spoken about in this interview is the you know, the challenges of being a, a first time filmmaker without big financial backing this trip was self-financed by by me there's a few adventure grants and there's a sponsorship of a lot of kit through some some lovely supportive sponsors that we had but the next step really is to try and get some more funding in order to go and sort of repeat our our model of using the sea kayak as as a means of investigating issues of sustainability and economic development and, and coastal issues in different places around the world and with different audiences. That's the dream. The dream is definitely to do more of these projects. Right. Do you have another one planned? Of course. <laughs> of, of course, but I don't have any money yet. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. uh, yeah.
0: Any of those sponsors you'd like to thank?
1: Oh I mean our, our three principal sponsors that I should give a shout out to are Reed Chill Cheetah, who are a North Devon based firm who make a sort of water sport clothing and, and really sort of pitch themselves for the paddling community. Chris Reed is the founder. I'm of the same age as his kids and he actually gave me a load of free stuff when I went and did the Scandinavia paddle. So he's always sort of sponsored me or looked out for me, believed in me. Uh, I know he's done that with other young sea kayakers as well. So he was massive. Then there were Nautorade who provided us with these two beautiful if temperamental boat which you get to see lots of in the film and there was also Dakota Lithium who are a lithium ion battery manufacturer in Seattle who sponsored us and provided us with all of our power management and storage for the trip which is pretty hard when it's raining constantly to keep all of your filmmaking kit dry Uh, and they, they they were also awesome. Their CEO is uh is a is a kayaker himself so uh he, he was always brought into the the idea of the project i get, and the only other person i'd want to the only other group i'd want to thank really is a bit of a canoe club because i owe my entire paddling background to them um, i don't actually own a boat myself never have you know uh, as an 18 year old and then in my early 20s learning to paddle i i learned through that club and through the time of the leaders and coaches there give which is basically always given up for free and being able to borrow club kit whether that's a wetsuit or a boat or a paddle or whatever it is hundred percent any success i have as a sea kayaker can be taken back to that club
0: so this has been fantastic, learning about your journey and learning about the movie, uh, Paddling the Margins*. So I appreciate you spending your time with me today. Um, I do have one final question for you, Jack, and that is who else would you like to hear as a future guest on
1: Paddling the Blue? Well, I hope you haven't actually already spoken to him, John. So if you have, I'll have to give a different answer. But it is, is Chris Reed who I mentioned as a sponsor, because he set up this business based on like developing new materials and really creating products based of what kayakers need. I think it'd be really interesting to hear more about his journey as an entrepreneur in the paddling space. I think that'd be like a very different type of paddling the blue interview. Well, I will
0: definitely reach out to, I'll connect with you offline and we'll yeah. reach out to Chris and, and learn more about his journey and and read Child Cheater. Yeah. So, That'd be cool. Excellent. Well, again, Jack, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to learn from you today, and uh, we'll look forward to sharing paddling the margins with the world.
1: Awesome. Thanks very much, John.
0: Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions, along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler, and they can make a difference for you, too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit PaddlingExercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Thanks to Jack for taking on the project of bringing light to the communities we paddle through and how we impact them, as well as how they are impacted by others. It may not be something that we always consider, and I hope that today's conversation, along with the opportunity to hear firsthand from those in the communities in the movie, will give you more insight, too. So be sure to check the show notes for this episode. We'll have some links to some of the sponsors, as well as links to Paddling the Margins, the movie, uh, once it becomes available. Thanks again to our partners at Level 6 and Online Sea Kayaking for extending offers to you. If you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, just visit their website at level6.com. Use the coupon code PTBpodcast at checkout for 10% off your order. And visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com and take advantage of the great video programming from James and Simon and other talented guests, including previous guests of Paddling the Blue. Just enter the code PTBpodcast at checkout and get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. Mike Conroy is going to join us for the next episode of the Paddling the Blue podcast. Mike has recently completed his paddle around Ireland, and we're going to talk about what led him to that point, what he experienced, and where he's going next. His is a really fun interview with an everyday paddler who has set his mind to a project, and he's making it happen. Until then, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue.